Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, we ask that you continue to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight now and forevermore. And Lord, let us dig deeply into your word this day and see your desire that there indeed be no needy among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. That first line from what Jerry read, there will be no one in need among you. That, I do believe, is God's desire, that there is no one in need among us. And today our, our, our phrase is one that uh, God helps those who help themselves, is one that the Bible, uh, people actually think is in the Bible very uh, much. Uh, there's a large majority of the population, some polls show 75% of Americans and 68% of Christians actually believe that this statement is found in the Bible, that God helps those who help themselves. Uh, in case you were sleeping earlier or missed the title of this sermon series, it is not in the Bible, just so you know. Uh, so you may be wondering then where did it come from if we're so familiar with it as Christians, it almost sounds like it's scripture. Well, historians trace this idea back to one of Aesop's fables, fables initially back in the first century, and then it became well known in America after Benjamin Franklin published it in Poor Richard's Almanac back in 1757. God helps those who help themselves. Like many memorable and often quoted sayings, does contain an element of truth, but it also misses a larger point. You know, none of us is completely self-sufficient or even should try to be, and none of us is without the ability to make some contribution to the world around us either. The partial truth is this, of this statement is expressed in Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica, a congregation he established on one of his missionary journeys into the present-day uh, country of Greece. As, proclaimed, as he proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ and this new life that Christ offers uh, through faith, he told them that Jesus would return. And he said it might be very soon. And it seems like that these early Christians took that quite literally. Because they went out and they sold all their property, they quit their jobs, and they sat around watching and waiting for Jesus to come back. I can just kind of imagine them sitting around, kind of looking up and going, you see him? You see him? And, and then maybe they needed to take a nap, and so they would say, okay, I'm going to take a nap, you stay awake. And if you see him, tap me and wake me up real quick, okay? And, you know, that's how I almost imagined. They were just sitting around, idly looking up. And then quickly, because of this idle waiting, they had to eat food that other people bought and grew because they were just sitting around. They started gossiping, as people often do when they just gather around in groups and don't have any meaningful thing to talk about or do. They just start yatting at each other. And then, amazingly, problems started popping up because of all this talk. So Paul, when he heard about this, he gave them some advice, which you can find in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He said, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. 
he didn't want them to think back then that, you know, as ministers of the gospel, that they weren't supposed to work too. Uh, he wanted to be clear with them that this wasn't just his only role, but that he would work to earn his keep while he was there. Uh, we hear, and then he went on and he said, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and to earn the food they eat. And now while this instruction from Paul is given here in relation to this specific circumstances, circumstance of them laying around being idle, the lesson can still be applied, I think, on a bigger scale today. Uh, we should all pray and watch for Christ's return. That's something we should do. We should look and be ready at any time. But Jesus himself even says that you will not know the time or the place. So it's, it's pointless for us to spend our time doing that. So the reality is um, that we should keep ourselves busy. Uh, that we should be uh, engaged uh, in meaningful and life-giving work in the meantime. In this sense, we can see how God helps those who help themselves is partially true. But it is not completely true from a biblical perspective. Sometimes God helps those who help themselves is used by Christians in an effort to avoid the clear biblical mandate given by God to work for the common good, to help others, and to love our neighbors. We say things like, just try harder, or get a job, or we blame people for their predicament. But saying things like try harder is an insult for those who have already been through so much. When we tell someone to try harder, we don't necessarily know where they started. And if they started way down here and they're here, they've already tried harder. And telling them to do that is not helpful. They've, been, they've worked so hard just to get to where they are, and they still just can't seem to get ahead. The reality is that there are some people who cannot help themselves. Oppressive structures do exist. People are trapped in cycles of poverty. Some are caught in difficult circumstances like job loss or illness or death of a spouse or past mistakes or bad decisions, and they all leave them frustrated. Sometimes people are in a hole so deep that they just can't climb out with someone helping them. Jesus declares that the greatest commandment that guides us in our lives of faith is love God and love our neighbor. And if we are to do that, we can't leave those neighbors who are struggling behind. Theologian Walter Brueggemann writes, the gospel very much wants us to think in terms of a neighborhood, in terms of being in solidarity with other people, in sharing our resources and of living out beyond ourselves. The gospel contradicts the dominant values of our system, which encourages self-protection and self-sufficiency at the loss of the common good. Sometimes as people of faith, we must lovingly act as proxies for our neighbors when they feel helpless or hopeless or powerless, because that's what a neighbor does. We cannot simply be bystanders to another's helplessness or powerlessness. 
And when we step in the gap, it's not a permanent stepping in the gap. We hope that by helping for a while that we can empower them to be more confident to step in their own stead in the future. But we cannot leave them behind when they're feeling this way. In contrast to God helps those who help themselves. Throughout both the Old and New Testaments, we hear stories of both how God provides for those who cannot provide for themselves and how all people of faith and we particularly as followers of Jesus are to reflect the caring nature of our creator in providing care for others who are in need. In the Old Testament book of Leviticus, God instructed the people not to harvest all of their crops, but they were to leave some of the crops on the edges of the fields so that those crops could be there to feed the poor and the immigrant so they could not starve to death. And this commandment is a commandment of compassion that helped the people to recognize that the crops and fields ultimately all belong to God. And God cares about all of his creation. So therefore, they should make this uh, adjustment to allow the poor to eat. Proverbs also shares these words of wisdom. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. And the generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. And in the book of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament known as the Pentateuch, this concept of Sabbath and sabbatical year and jubilee are developed. And if you like to study the Bible, I would suggest you study this section. Because it's an amazing, it paints an amazing picture of what God would like for our society to be. In Exodus, Leviticus, and as we heard today from Deuteronomy in particular, God shares his desire for structures that allow for all human flourishing. Brueggemann calls this collection of teachings the most radical part of the Bible that nobody knows anything about. So maybe that'll get your interest peaked to go read it. Uh, but it is, it's, it's very interesting. I've enjoyed preparing for this sermon because it, it is amazing to start to get a picture of what this could be like. In Exodus 23, God provides instruction on the sabbatical year, which established every seventh year that the land uh, would have a Sabbath rest so that it could be rejuvenated. Imagine the impact that could have on our society and our eco ecological problems if every seven years we actually let the land rest. And we let those who grow our food and work the land and toil so hard to have a moment of rest. Or then in Deuteronomy 15, uh, there we hear added to this sabbatical year that debts are to be forgiven and slaves are to be set free. Imagine our world if every seven years your debts were forgiven. And you could start anew. Brueggemann adds, not only is the tenure of indentured servitude given a limit of just six years, but the Israelite is enjoined to help the newly freed slave achieve a fresh economic start. He says this in 15, 13 to 14. When you set him free, do not let him go empty-handed. Furnish him out of the flock, threshing floor and vat, with which the Lord your God has blessed you. So you give them some resources to get this fresh start. To send someone back out into the world with nothing is almost a guarantee that he or she will fall back into a debilitating debt. 
Deuteronomy mandates that the Israelite people not inflict such economic helplessness on one who has served them. The teaching is willing to override all conventional common sense economics in the interest of creating and sustaining a viable social fabric in which all members have the means to participate effectively. The economy must yield to the viability of the community. And then, the most radical of all, every 50th year, God commands a complete economic and social reset. In this jubilee year, once in a generation, all land uh, was to be returned to its original owners. All debts were to be forgiven and all slaves were, were to be released. Can you imagine the impact that this all could have on our world today if once in a generation everything could be reset? I know it's hard to even imagine. And in fact, some Christians even use Jesus uh, to say such radical economic reconciliation is not possible by, by quoting Jesus' own words in Matthew 26, 11. Here, um, he says these words after his disciples chastised the woman who uh, anointed Jesus with costly perfume. And he says to them, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. That this woman has done a good work for me. But this is not meant to excuse our attempts to eliminate poverty any more than our statement for today, God helps those who help themselves. Rather, many biblical scholars agree that Jesus is directly quoting from part of our scripture reading from today, from Deuteronomy 15.11, which the people of Jesus' day would have recognized when he said those words, that it was saying, the reason there will be poor people with you always is because you are not doing the things that I commanded you. You are not loving one another. You're not caring for one another. You're not forgiving debts. You're not returning land. You're not paying a living wage. That is why the poor will always be with you. Because as Jesus said, that God said in the beginning, here, there will be no one needy among you. Our God is not insufficient or deficient. God provides enough for us all. We are the reason why they're poor. But they would have recognized that that's what Jesus was doing. He was correcting the disciples, for, for chastising this woman who has given it all. Only when people act greedy, take more than they need, and hoard for themselves will there not be enough for all of God's children. This radical concept of Sabbath year and Jubilee year is meant to restructure the society that creates beggars in the first place and allow for human flourishing for all people. In Matthew 12, 8, Jesus' connection to this good news is made clear as he is called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. We as Christians, followers of the Lord of the Sabbath, therefore, do not serve from a spirit of charity, but out of a spirit of justice. And Jesus calls us to this radical love and inclusion, especially for people who cannot help themselves. God indeed does help those who cannot help themselves. And oftentimes the way God meets the needs of those who are hurting and struggling in the world is by acting through ordinary people like you and like me. And while we help meet those 
needs, we should also work to critique, reform, and reshape unjust structures that inhibit all people from the abundant life that God wants for us all. Sometimes even our charity props up unjust systems. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must reject any public policy that fails to be shaped by gratitude to God, love of neighbor, or concern for the poor. Because if we have no compassion or concern for those in need, we have missed an essential part of the gospel message. At the very heart of the gospel is that Jesus, uh, that God came to us in Jesus Christ to help all of us because we could not help ourselves. As Paul says in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Before we were aware of God or our own need, God was already there taking the initiative. And because God has been gracious with us, because Jesus has saved us, we respond in gracious acts of love and compassion and justice and mercy for our neighbors. And when we do so, we are a witness to the goodness of our great God, and we offer hope and healing to those who so desperately, desperately need it. The truth is that when we, the truth, truth is that we are all helpless. But God helps us because he loves us and through his grace. In Christ we are made clean and whole and given new life and a purpose that goes out far beyond ourselves. The good news is that God helps those who can help themselves and God helps those who cannot. Wherever you find yourself today, I hope you will be encouraged by the God who desires jubilee for us all. A world where all are honored and valued, where all are known and loved, where the common good guides our steps, and where the light of Christ shines so brightly that there indeed is no one in need among us. Open your heart and your hand and may you know the joy of being blessed with kingdom imagination to make it so for the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen.